Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today's Thursday, October the 5th, 2023. This will be episode 3,389 of the Survival Podcast. If you've missed any of the discussion about this recently, we are now on a four-show-a-week schedule after over 15 years of a five-show-a-week schedule, I just decided uh, I am going to take a little bit more time with my family and with my life and things outside of work. Um, and so it's been a adjustment that's been fairly pleasant over the past week, two weeks now since I decided to do it. But that's just a reminder. I think I'm going to start putting these shows out on Thursday. Uh, that way there's nothing for me to worry about on Friday. I have a long weekend every weekend, and uh, I think I've worked long enough to have that. So anyway, what are we going to talk about today? Well, in the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, uh, Dr. Paul and Dan McAdams will talk about the fact that our Congress has actually finally closed the automatic uh, withdrawal at will checkbook to Ukraine, at least for now, and what that might mean. Chris Rossini will talk about the fact that the only role government should actually play is protecting individual liberty. I'll have some add-on to that, because if you actually just did that, if you protected individual liberty, then everything else would see to itself. It, it really would. It is that simple. I know it doesn't seem like it, but it is. Uh, Tim Toolman Cook has seven must-have prepper tools and resources. Sean Mills will talk about building with stone and straw bale combined construction. Nick Ferguson will talk about managing and grazing pastures in the regenerative way. Jeff Lawton will talk about determining the spacing between swales and a permaculture design. Matt Hill will talk about how Start9 actually provides the anonymity and encryption and other privacy services that it, 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 uh, it promises. And I did say Matt Hill. He's not officially a member of the council, but when something comes in about Start9 or in that world, I'll kick it over to him from time to time. And then I have a question about flashlights. Somebody bought one of the... Uh, Streamlight microstreams that I recommend. They're a great little EDC light, but they want something that's more suited toward like being able to search their property at night or something like that. And that's not really what that light's for. And I've never said it was. Um, I'll have some different options for you guys. I take a totally different approach than these folks might want to, in that. You know, a light to go look around my property. It's a, like a 3D cell mag light, and I'll, I'll talk about how I, you know, keep those available in my house at all times. I want to do my segment, but there are some other options. If you wanted a small compact light that's really, really bright, you can do that. It just comes off with trade-offs in cost and performance on longevity and things like that. And I'll give you a few options and my thoughts and and my explanations to why I take the approach that I do, which is a simplified and standardized approach, which is how I try to come at most things, is standardization is a word that you will hear from me over and over and over again, uh, because it just, well, I think you'll see when we get to my segment, it makes sense. With that, uh, before we lead off, just real quick reminder, next week will be a bit of a short week, even shorter than the new short week, because I'll be heading up to Camden at the end of the week for the Self-Reliance Festival. Uh, I'll be up there speaking. Joel Salatin will be there, Nicole Sauce, John Willis, a lot of other cool people. It's going to be great. 
I'd love to have you guys come up there and meet with me if you can. There's still time to get tickets for it. You can also get a virtual pass if you can't come in person and see all of the presentations live streamed right to your device. Uh, so there are links in the show notes for that. With that, let's jump on into the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights of the Week. As we were talking about on, Tuesday, on Thursday, this whole thing is going down to Ukraine funny. The government is going to shut down because stubborn Republicans refuse to take the Ukraine money out of the continuing resolutions. And it came down to the wire on Saturday afternoon with a few holdouts, Mitch McConnell being one of them, and we'll talk about him next, a few holdouts saying we've got to keep Ukraine money in this CR. And the rest of the party saying if you do that, we will A, have a shutdown of government, and all Republicans are going to be blamed for it. There's going to be a huge hit for us. So they finally relented. So the reason I think it's significant, Dr. Paul, is it shows you that, so when this whole thing started, the aid for Ukraine was automatic. There was just no. Now you're showing that it actually is an impediment to even passing a continuing resolution and keeping the government funding. So the opposition to this blank check for Ukraine has now gone from zero to so powerful it could stop the government. I just happen to think that's a pretty promising thing. The people are starting to wake up, so there are some. And there's members of Congress that are starting to wake up. Yeah. And uh, they, they, were, they got their attention. They got attention of a lot of people. And, uh, and it's not over yet. Yeah. So we'll see. They almost stopped the bill, but you're right. I mean, this is Matt, what Matt Gates is claiming, is that McCarthy went behind the House Republicans' back and met with the Democrats and said, hey, guys, just keep it on the down low here. We're going to take the money out from Ukraine because we've got to pass it. These radicals over here are getting on my nerves. But don't worry, we're going to bring it up separately. And, well, my own party may not have enough to pass it, but you guys help me out and we'll get that money to Ukraine. Well, you know, the other thing, I have to find something to worry about because, <laughs> because somebody says I'm overly optimistic about it. But I have to worry about, you know, not having false hope. Yeah. Uh, you have to know what the truth is. So the one thing that bothers me about this is some of the best fighters against this stuff for Ukraine. What are they going to do with the money? Yeah. All this money they're going to say, oh, yeah. well, what we have to do is send more ships to patrol and pest the Chinese yeah, because yeah. they're the they're the real enemy and uh, that that's what'll happen. So it's it's the spending and the deficits and the monetary it's so institutionalized that uh, we have to do everything to stop it, reverse it, explain it. Uh, we believe that the role of government should be, as our founders believe, to protect our liberty. Uh, once you veer away from that. And you open a door to where government is a, a, a billy club that can be used for one person against another person. Now you open a door for what we have today. And that's exactly what it is. It's just this big power center that you, people fight to get in control of to use for their own benefit. And the power centers are usually very far removed. They're not part, you know, like the World Economic Forum, the Fed. It's a cartel of bankers. You know, the European Union was set up. It's terrible how that was set up. You know, those who make the decisions are very sheltered and far removed from the people. But that's, you know, people that want power, they want that. They don't want to, uh, to, to uh, have any type of public uh, mandate against them. So they, they're very far removed. Many times you don't even know who they are. 
So, and they pursue goals for themselves, not for the country. Think about our wars, you know, from Vietnam to to Korea to Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria, and uh, you know now Ukraine. These have they're, they're, there's no benefit to us, and there's not even any uh, uh, a distant benefit. It's not like our armies go out and they bring back trillions of dollars, and we're like, oh wow, look what they did. That would still be wrong, but we get nothing. We get nothing but debts. Higher prices. We we just pay for it. That's it. There's no benefit for us. Same thing with the border. You know, with just letting anybody in. This is not for our benefit. This is being done by people that are doing it for their benefit. So it all comes back down to what the role of government should be. And it has slipped from our hands. And it is out of our hands. And we're paying a big price for it. Now, the good thing is all these power centers, they fight with one another. So to think that they're all going to come together and have some kind of world government, I think, is delusional because they all want power for themselves. But the American people need to realize that we have to go backwards to go forwards. You know, they had good ideas that the U.S. government should be there to protect our liberty. And the sooner we go, even in that direction, forget about even getting there, in that direction, the better off we'll be. You know, when you, you say something, the, like the only legitimate role of the state is the protection of individual rights. It's taken to be very selfish and very maybe fanciful, sophomoric, childish, whatever. What's in it for me? It, it, and that's just because our minds have been warped. Let me explain it very simply. Individuals having rights is a statement that the smallest minority always has rights. Understand that. There is no smaller minority than an individual. So somebody says, well, what about women's rights? Women are individuals. Protect the individual rights, and women's rights are seen to. What about the rights of people of color? People of color are individuals. Protect the individual's rights, and people of color's rights are protected. And you can go through it any subset any demographic you want to, if you see sacrosanct above all things, the rights of individuals to their freedom, so long as they are not harming another person, then you do not have to worry about any specific little special group. You have to pat on the head and pat on the fanny and powder their ass and say, oh, you need something special. No, because individual rights are protected. Now, the problem with this is, <clears throat> one, it is <clears throat> antithetical to growing a bloated corpse of a government that is wasteful and steals your money. Because there's not that much that needs to be done to see to that specific mandate. Protect the rights of individuals. You want to throw in there, defend the borders of the nation? Okay. Which would really be protecting the property rights of the individuals. Because that way the nation can see to the individual's rights because there is sovereignty in the nation. And it's, so it's still back to protecting individual rights. And you're done. And there's nothing else to be done at that point. And so when somebody says, well, what about this? Well, then go freaking do something about it. Then go do something about it. Show me where an individual's rights are being interfered with or go away. And it's done. And what a simple way to run a society. People have inherent rights as individuals, and those are to be protected above all other things. And again, I know there's a piece of many of you, even those of you that know this is true, there's a piece of you that just feels well, that's about selfishness. 
It's about me having whatever I want. No, it's about anybody having whatever they want. And it is inherently unselfish. This is why people have a hard time accepting it. Because if you say this and you mean it and you fully understand what you're saying, you're realizing that what you're saying is, so those people over there doing a thing I don't want to do as long as they're not hurting anybody else, I have to shut my effing mouth and go on about my effing life and not interfere with their life? I can't use force by proxy to interfere with what they're doing? You tell me it's selfish to think that way. It's very selfless to think that way. I simply want to be left alone. I think... One of the rights that was seen as inherent, but so obvious there was no need to state it in our founding documents, is the right to be left alone. That people have a right to be left alone. It is one of the most innate human rights there is. I'm over here, I'm not bothering you, leave me alone. Leave me alone. In fact, to me, it's one of the most egregious things that we can do to... Step step on the rights of another party. It happens all the time in school. There's the kid that's being picked on. All the kid wants, he or she just wants to be left alone. Just leave. They don't need you to do anything for them. Leave them alone. Kids can't do it. They make the kid miserable. And we just, you think it goes away when you get out of school because it's not so overt and in the open. No, now it's covered in, it's a, it's a, 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 a metal glove, like a gauntlet. With, 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 with velvet over the top of it to hide what it really is, and the state and its apparatuses see to harassing people and not leaving them alone. If we protect the rights of the individuals, and if we recognize that one of the most inherent rights an individual has is the right to be left alone, most of the things that we screw around with, we wouldn't have to even touch, we wouldn't have to fund it, we wouldn't have to do anything. It's not selfish. It's selfless to realize that every other being on this planet has the same inherent rights that you do, and those rights include, include being left alone. Those rights include the right to their own property. That, that includes their right to choose what they eat, what they don't eat. It, it includes their right to decide who they do business with and who they don't. It's very simple. It's a very, very simple thing. That's why it's complicated, because we have made sure that anything simple is repelled by the mind in modern society. Moving on, let's hear from Tim Toolman at Cook on seven must-have tools and resources for preppers. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back with another segment for the Expert Council, so let's dive right in. Uh, recently, I was on the Casual Preppers podcast, and they asked me a question that I thought, hey, I should come by here and share it with you guys. Haven't had too many questions come through from the audience, so here's a good segment for you, and a good segue that if you do have questions, send them to Jack. So they asked me for must-have items, uh, favorite things that I've reviewed for preppers, survival, and handyman, home maintenance, that sort of thing. So... Some of these you've heard me mention before, but you need to hear them because these are all things that I absolutely love. Number one is shark bite fittings. I will preach the gospel of the shark bite fitting constantly. Now, I would not want to plumb an entire house in shark bites. Not because they're not reliable, but simply because they are darned expensive. You're talking over $10 a piece here in Canada now for a single coupling. But... When you match that up with the fact that, you know, calling in a plumber is a minimum of 100 to $200 in this day and age, 
a shark bite fitting can save you that and then some. If you go down your basement on a Sunday afternoon, Super Bowl Sunday, for instance, and you see a little line of water just spraying out of your copper lines and all of a sudden you need to fix it, shark bite fittings are the way. Look them up. Number two, this is one I don't think I've mentioned on here before, Wago Electric Nuts or Wago Electric Connections, W-A-G-O. They are incredible. For anybody who's ever used the old Marette, the twist-on electrical connections, and you've taken a couple of years off your life by swearing so much because they got you so mad you couldn't get them to make good connections, these Wago Nuts are incredible. They're just a little tiny plastic connection with orange tabs on top. You flip the orange tab up, you slide the wire in, you snap it down, you're done. Take a look. Find a kit on Amazon. I'll send a link to Jack for these, for all of this stuff, but the Wago Nuts... As soon as you use them, you'll wonder why you use twist-on morettes ever, ever before. Number three, PRI-G. I, I do love, or well, I've used Stable in the past, but um, PRI-G is by far the best fuel stabilizer on the market. It's a little more money up front, but per gallon of gasoline, it works out significantly cheaper than all other fuel stabilizers on the market. What makes PRI-G absolutely better is the fact that it's the only one on the market that will allow you to, quote-unquote, infinitely retreat your gasoline. It will allow you, once a year, to retreat your gasoline and keep it good forever. Whereas Stable and even Seafoam both say 12 months and that's it. Speaking of Seafoam, if you've never used Seafoam before, I call that stuff magic in a can. If you've got an engine that you haven't taken good care of, you didn't winterize it properly, you put old skunky gas in it, the spark plugs are fouled up, the carburetor is getting a little bit sticky, it's not running good, it's jaggy up and down, kind of idling, put a few glugs of that into the gas tank, run it through, and you will not be disappointed with the results. It kind of, I don't even exactly know the science behind it other than the fact that it kind of attracts itself to the dirt, sticks itself to the dirt, and helps it burn through all that junk. It is just a wonderful... I, You know, there's been occasions where it hasn't worked, but it's never screwed anything up for me. If, if, if you're, you know, if your carburetor's absolutely busted, seafoam's not going to help. But if it's just because you have old gas or you haven't treated the engine very well, seafoam is incredible. Next, the GoV freezer alarm temperature sensors. I found these almost three years ago, and they're not designed for cold weather use, but I've been using them for three years now, and I've only had to change the batteries once a year. I've been using the Panasonic Eneloop batteries in them. They work great, but what I love about them is they're not just a Bluetooth sensor. They're also a Wi-Fi sensor, so I can be out of town doing whatever I want to do, and if the temperature goes above where it should be, it sends me a notification to my phone and lets me know. Next, one of my favorite and off, another often overlooked product that a lot of people don't necessarily know is First Alert Fire Spray. There's other companies out there that make it, but it's basically fire extinguisher in an aerosol can. Now, it doesn't necessarily replace existing fire extinguishers, but it's sure as heck a lot better than the fire extinguisher you don't have. They're cheaper. They're five years. They have a five-year shelf life. They don't need to be treated recertified or anything during that five years you just set it and forget it and what i love about it two things they're dead simple 
If you can spray spray on a bug to kill them, anybody can use it. Um, at the time, my 9 or 10 year old daughters did a video with me. They were able to put a fire out, no problem at all. And you can afford to buy four cans of this for the price of one cheap fire extinguisher that in theory is supposed to be recertified every year. I just love simple products that work. And then finally, one of my favorite ones, I don't know why I waited so long to buy it, is a Klein voltage tester pen. If you're ever doing any work around electrical whatsoever, if you ever just want to know, is that live or not, the voltage pen takes almost all the guesswork out of it. Still, don't be stupid and not turn off the power, but I love it. You turn it on, it has an audible and a visual beep and light that you see. You point it at the, the wire, you want to know, is it live, is it dead? If it doesn't beep, it's dead. If it beeps, it's live. It makes things so simple and it's dirt cheap. Anything I've bought from Klein has been incredible. So check that out, guys. I love that. I'll send links to all of this to Jack. And guys, keep sending me questions. I love hearing from you. I love getting the questions. I love answering them. We can talk about tools. We can talk about a handyman business. We can talk about entrepreneurship, content creation, backup power, fuel storage, generators, power stations, and a whole bunch more. So keep them coming my way and I'll answer them for you. And if you want to know what I'm up to, come by the YouTube channel at The Workshop. Or join us live for Workshop Radio every Thursday, Friday, and Sunday evening, 7 p.m. Mountain Time. I'd love to see you. And as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So I do have links to all of the cool stuff that Tim mentioned in the show notes because there were so many. There's a subset in the resources toward the bottom of the post for today's episode for 3389 uh, instead of right up under Tim. It sh but there is a segment right under the sponsor segment that says Tim Cook's 7 Must Have Tools, and there's links to everything, the Wago electric nuts, the shark bite fittings, the PRG fuel treatment, PRIG fuel treatment, the seafoam, all of it is there. Anyway, with that, let's move along, and we're going to hear now from Sean Mills, on construction that involves using straw bale and stone in a common construction project. Hey everybody, this is Sean Mills with HackMyHomestead.com and today I've got a question from Adam about building a castle. No, just kidding. It's about how would you combine and join structural stone wall construction with straw bale insulation for a custom house. I'm planning to build my own home in an area with no building codes, but for it to last, it's got to be done right. I'm designing the home with the goal of lasting 1,000 years with minimal periodic repair and maintenance. When I look at ancient non-earthen structures, it seems that they are pretty much all made of stone, and my area has plentiful, plentiful limestone. Where I live, there are four seasons, so I want to have insulation against extreme cold and heat. Local availability of straw is also very good. I have asked conventional contractors about how they would do this, but all their answers are based on conventional practice, being usually cheap and crappy and dictated by building codes involving specialized materials. I want to do this right, but sustainably. Would I be able to mortar stoned stones right on the outside of a lime plaster that straw bale homes often use? Should I have a two-wall design with a gap in between the stone layer, which I want to be structural, not a facade, think 18 inches thick, and the straw bale wall, also 18 inches thick? 
What would you recommend I do to prevent moisture drive from the stone to the straw bales? Your experience is much appreciated. Kind regards, Zach. Hey, Zach, this sounds like a really interesting project. One of the things to remember is that a thousand-year house is still going to have regular uh, and probably annual maintenance so we can't get into the idea of thinking that it's kind of like build it and then it's just going to last forever. Um, any of these structures that are built properly based on what we know today about building technology um, and and also built to make the inhabitants comfortable, um, it's just going to re- require some maintenance. But it really does sound like a cool project, and I have actually done some research into alternative building methods and visited several sites where straw bale and cob construction has been utilized. So while I haven't done this myself, I've done a significant amount of research and feel like I can provide some pretty good answers for you. Now, the main thing you want to do is to make sure that you have a moisture barrier between the stone wall and the cob wall. Um, from a moisture and thermal insulation standpoint, it would actually be better to put the uh, straw bale on the outside with lime plaster and then the stone on the inside. But most people want that stone exterior, and it sounds like that's what you want. So we can make this work. Uh, you want to make sure that that um, that uh, st- the straw bales stay dry, right? That's the the enemy of the straw bale is moisture. And this can be something as simple as a layer of plastic or tar on the inside of the stone wall. My guess is that your limestone wall will sit either on a on slab, on grade, or on a pretty substantial footer. So you will need to raise the straw bell wall structure up so it's not making any contact with the ground as well. So from a moisture barrier uh, standpoint, think and get the straw up off the ground, moisture barrier underneath, moisture barrier in between straw bale and stone. Uh, Now, my thought as I was kind of kicking around this idea was it would be neat to actually build a stone wall on the exterior, then have an 18-inch gap, and then a secondary stone wall on the interior. So instead of an 18-inch thick wall, two 9-inch thick walls with an 18-inch uh, straw bale insulated space in between. This allows you to have the nice aesthetics of the stone on the exterior of the building. It provides the insulative uh, impact of the straw bale and also the thermal mass of the stone structure uh, on the inside. So your interior walls, uh, when tied into um, you know your slab on grade or into your footers, create kind of a monolithic uh, thermal mass for the interior. So when you're heating on the interior, you're heating all those spaces. And when your fire dies out at 4 a.m. and you don't get up until 8, it's still warm on the inside because you've got all that thermal mass that's taken up uh, the heat and it's radiating it back into the building and not radiating it out to the exterior of the building because you have the straw bale insulation between the interior and exterior walls. Uh, So you kind of have a wall sandwich there, and it's the same thing. You would put a vapor barrier on both the inside and the outside um, edges of the straw bale. You want to make sure that this wall is relatively airtight on the exterior in particular um, because 
our value is great and it's important to have good insulation in your walls and your floors and your ceiling. But the reality is, is that um, air gaps are really the bigger problem. You can have very, very well insulated house. And if you have air gaps, then it's not going to feel that way. Um, so that's what I would do. I think that if you're going to go with a three foot thick wall, one of the things you're going to have to keep in mind is how to site and how to install properly your windows and doors. Um, on the south and west sides of the house, your interior window ledges should actually be angled towards the floor to allow more light to enter and to not make it feel like you're living in a cave. If you've ever been to a medieval castle or like paid attention to a medieval castle, you'll notice very small windows, you know, and they're not glazed typically. They're just holes in the wall uh, set into thick stone walls. But there are wide angles from the interior wall to the actual window opening. So you might have a one foot by one foot window opening, but the opening in the internal wall is actually three inches by three inches. And that does a couple things. One, if you were defending the castle, it allows you to stand inside and have a wider range uh, for someone that might be holding a bow, for example, because you can go up against the wall uh, and have a wide, you know, maybe 200 degree exterior view. Um, but on a day-to-day basis, it allows much more light to penetrate in and reflect off the interior surfaces of the building. If you were to have a three or four foot thick stone wall with just a one inch, a one foot by one inch foot hole straight through it, uh, you're going to get very little bit, little light penetration on the inside. So, Zach, good question. Thanks for sending it in. Uh, you guys keep getting these questions in. I'll keep getting them answered. Thanks. Next up, let's hear from Nick Ferguson on improving uh, pasture nutrition in a holistic manner. Nick Ferguson here with an expert counsel answer on pasture management. But before I get into that, I want to remind you guys about the apprenticeship opportunity coming up with Homegrown Liberty. Details are at the website, homegrownliberty.com. I'll be off the grid for most of the month of October, but I plan on recording several answers for you guys while I'm off in the mountains camping and hunting. Uh, On to the question. This is from Lucas. Question for maybe Jeff Lawton or Nick Ferguson, whoever can best answer. Looking for tips and tricks on regenerative pasture management in western Missouri, an hour south of Kansas City. I love that area. It's really pretty up there. What's the best way to find the nutritional value or plant composition of the current pasture? Should I ever mow it? If so, how often and does timing matter? Should I plan to reseed ever? Are there regular tests or things I should look for to monitor pasture health? I have 12 acres of pasture with five head of cattle on it. They are happy and healthy, not rotated, but they roam well across it all, just looking for best practices for ongoing care so it gets better. I've asked local farmers, and the answers typically involve outside inputs and drill seeding, just looking for opinions from a regenerative perspective. Thanks. Uh, Great set of questions. Um... I'm going to tackle all the unnecessary items first and then give a brief overview of what best practices entail, and then we'll kind of tie it back all back together. Uh, Number one, best way to find nutritional value or plant composition, reseeding or overseeding. Number three is regular tests to monitor pasture health. None of those are strictly necessary. Uh, Monitoring the pasture health, that's going to be, uh, if you're doing things well, it's irrelevant. It's just going to fix itself. Uh, reseeding, overseeding, that's only going to fix the species, um, and those are only going to change when the environmental conditions change, and that's going to come down to your pasture management. 
Uh, you don't have to seed to get excellent species mix. Uh, nutritional value or p- plant composition. Again, uh, the nu- nutritional value is going to come down to how are you managing the pasture. Um, the only thing we can do with that is to test the soil and amend to bring our minerals back into balance so that the plants have what they need. So none of those are strictly necessary. One of the only things I really suggest is, like I said, get your pasture soils tested for mineral balance and the mineral composition. I normally suggest going to Logan Labs and requesting their basic plus extras test. And that one just tests the selenium, molybdenum, um, cobalt, and I think one or two other extra things from the basic test. And I just like to know what those are because it lets me know if I need to bump up um, uh, or add a salt with selenium blend um, or what uh, amount of cobalt and molybdenum I need to be putting out on the pasture. And then I'd focus on getting calcium and magnesium in balance. Those are the two biggest uh, elements that are normally the cheapest. Um, And then after those two big two, uh, some of the cheapest additions that are going to be really heavy hitters, um, they're not like super cheap, but they're going to be kind of the best bang for your buck as kind of your secondary um, uh, approach are going to be zinc and copper, zinc sulfate and copper sulfate. Those are two cheap elements, and zinc is a big one. That does a tremendous amount to get your pastures and your animals healthy. Um, Because, I mean, if you think about it, if your soils are really deficient in zinc, that means the leaves are deficient in zinc. That means your animals are going to be deficient in zinc. So if we get the stuff, the raw materials there, then the plants can utilize it. That means the animals can. So eventually, you'll want to focus on phosphorus, cobalt, and molybdenum. Um, But those last three are kind of expensive and can be supplemented in other ways. Uh, Phosphorus, not as much as the cobalt and molybdenum because those are really trace elements. Um, But if you get your calcium and magnesium balanced, I I normally shoot for about an 80-20 balance. Don't overdo the magnesium. It's really easy to overdo that, and it's really difficult to deal with if your magnesium is really high. Calcium's way easier to deal with in excess than magnesium, so if you're ever in doubt, put like half as much magnesium out as you think you need to. Alongside um, those two, uh, if you get a decent amount of potassium on your pastures, that can really help. But potassium is present normally in large amounts from grains. So if you're supplementing with grain, you're probably getting the potassium out on the soil, at least enough to make a positive impact just in the manure. So really the only urgent thing uh, other than those will be to get out a free choice mineral buffet. I really like what they're doing over at freechoiceminerals.com. I don't have any affiliation with them. Um, but I like what they're doing. Greg Judy uses them. A couple other people I know use them, and I think it's fantastic. Uh, I suggest the 20 mineral selection because it's going to have the um, cobalt and molybdenum, and those are two of those that, man, it, if they don't have it, it's it it's quite surprising how much of an impact it has. And you'll quickly see what you're deficient in by what the livestock hit the hardest. Uh, Okay, should you mow? Only if you're not managing the grazing well. Mowing can knock down the undesirable weed species 
and it can act as like a band-aid or a buffer against poor management practices, but it's not 100% necessary because if you're managing your pasture well, you actually don't need to mow. Uh, the timing matters when you're mowing, but it's more complicated than I have time for on these kinds of answers and really kind of requires visuals to communicate the details. Um, I, If you're wanting that level of detail, I really highly suggest a uh, a grazing class or course from someone like Greg Judy. He is really switched on with that stuff. What you should be doing is rotationally grazing in such a way that you're seeing the cattle mob graze and trample. Um, with so few a number of head as five, you're unlikely to see that much mob action, but you can get a small amount of it by restricting their grazing to smaller paddocks and um, and possibly, you know, holding them in a sacrificial area for a little while to get them good and hungry so that they'll just kind of jostle each other to get to the stuff. If you're continually grazing the same ground year-round and you're not doing any rotation, you will, I guarantee, have constant degradation of the pasture and you will need to mow. It will not get better. It will get worse. You might get really lucky and just have a good set of circumstances and you might be able to supplement in other ways where you can slowly get it a little bit better but nine times out of ten when there's constant grazing pressure it's never good so to sum it up i get some free choice minerals out test and amend for at least the calcium and magnesium or better yet calcium magnesium potassium and phosphorus and then implement a rotational grazing system to build healthy soils and better speciation um I want to kind of circle back to why a few of the things are unnecessary. And I'm kind of getting a little bit long here. Um, if you rotationally graze and you don't overgraze, then, um, and you get the calcium magnesium balance healthy, you should see a significant increase in pasture health over the next five years. You, you don't really need to add all these other seeds and other species. They will show up. Birds will bring them in. Wind will blow them in. They will just show up. I bet you a whole bunch of the seeds are dormant in your soils anyways. So if you can afford to get all those minerals in balance and graze well, you will have stellar results. If you're interested in soil testing and mineral blend recipe formulation, I do that over the winter for clients who send their tests out to Logan Labs in the fall. So if you're listening to this and you want to get your orchard or your berry patch or your garden or your pasture squared away with the appropriate mineral balance, Shoot me an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com with soil rx in the subject line, and we can see about getting you sorted out or at least put on the waiting list. Hope that takes some pressure off your mind with all those seed mixes and what kind of plants do I need and tests for healthy plants and all that complexity. Just get rotational grazing implemented and your species mix will get better. Then fixing the mineral balance will help even more, but the biggest solution is rotational grazing. Thanks for the questions. Keep them coming. I'm Nick Ferguson with Homegrown Liberty. Do good things. Good stuff as always from Nick. Since we're in the permaculture vein, let's stay there for another round and hear from Jeff Lawton. And we're going to discuss how to plan uh, swell spacing, how far in between your swells in a specific design. Hi, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Hungary in Central Europe. I have a question here about swales and how far apart they should be placed. Um, and someone's going to be grazing cattle, um, growing some trees. Now, 
Trees are um, trees need to be grown on swales. Swales are tree growing systems. Excuse the little kids in the background. Got an active site here in Hungary. But yeah, swales are tree growing systems. So you really have to fence the cattle off the mounds and grow trees. Now you can grow productive trees of all kinds, but if you want to grow cattle forage that will feed cows, you fence it off. You always have to fence the cattle off the swale mounds. And the hangover forage, they can come up to the edge of the fence and graze. And if they're coming up to the fence, they'll manure on the upside of the pasture. If they're coming down to the fence, they'll manure so that it floods into the swale and dilutes along the swale line and helps fertilize the trees along the mound. So it's a win-win. Now, the more tree roots there are in the swale, the better the swales actually perform. So if I was a cattle farmer in your situation in Texas, I would be looking at really good nitrogen-fixing trees that are good cattle forage uh, because that would be my main planning. You say you want to plant some fruit and nuts, well, you could just slip them in amongst them here and there where you want them. Now, the distance between the swales, what you do is you work out the vertical height of the trees that you expect to grow. Now, what is their sort of most average height and sort of productive height and you take a vertical height of the tree and you take that horizontally back into the hill and that's where your next swale is both pa yeoman and bill mollison said exactly the same thing about putting swales in the landscape and what the maximum distance needs to be it doesn't need to be any closer than that but that's kind of the ideal close you know that's the ideal height so a distance between the swells the vertical height of the trees you expect to grow as an average take that as the height of the next contour so contours are set at vertical height dis distances between each other when you do this and the trees grow and you're looking up the hill it looks like it's all canopy but when you get in there in amongst them you'll see there is lots and lots of space between the trees. You're harvesting water, you're reducing evaporation from some shade and some wind buffering and, of course, the organic matter from the trees. You will have to fence, but today we can do some pretty nifty fencing with uh, solar pad electric fencing and you'll have a completely transformed landscape. There you go. So about the only thing that I would advise someone looking at doing this in Texas is I don't know that I would be as concerned as Jeff is about the trees that you're using in this system being nitrogen fixing. There's not a lot of great trees that are also nitrogen fixers that are also good cattle feed that do well here. Now there is one, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it, but a lot of you are not going to want to use it because of what it is, and it's a mesquite. Uh, mesquite is incredibly thorny. It makes, you know, black locusts look like it's not. Both of your locust species, your black and your honey locust, can be used in this situation. Uh, but to me, the two trees that I have seen do the best in dealing with the harshness of our summers here have been mulberry and hackberry. Mulberry is a fantastic fodder tree if you want to use some of the tree as fodder for your, your ruminants. And hackberry, to my understanding, is a good fodder tree and traditionally uses fodder tree. My geese, when they were little, loved eating hackberry. 
Uh, I don't know how well it works for cattle. It would be something to check into. But to me, I would probably favor trees that can handle the heat and do well in our climate here in Texas and make good fodder over nitrogen fixing. You're not really going to have much of a nitrogen deficit, um, especially if you're like in the central to eastern part of Texas where you're either in, in, in the, the, the red clay areas or the dark black uh, blackland prairie clays. Uh, these soils are pretty good at conserving nutrient. And then you have cattle grazing and crapping and, and dropping their manure. So Jeff's always citing to the nitrogen fixing. Jeff's majority, not all, but the majority of the main body of his work has been done in the tropics and desert regions with thin soils that are highly deficient in nitrogen and have a, you know, the deserts have a different reason, but in the, the rainforest area where he lives uh, in the semi-tropics in, uh, in Australia, these soils are, it's so much rain during the rainy season that they're constantly being washed through. Uh, just as the Amazon is best known by biologists who really know what's going on instead of people that just think they know, is a wet desert. It's so much rain. And that's why there was so much of an impact uh, by uh, the use of native peoples uh, in creating terra preta with biochar thousands of years ago uh, in the Amazon basin because it helped stop that leaching through. So it's not that he's wrong, because I'm never going to tell you Jeff's wrong. I was going to say that it may not be as important if you're in a place where you don't really have much of a problem with a nitrogen deficiency. And you may want to side more to survivability of the tree and palatability uh, to your livestock. Otherwise, I completely agree with that. And definitely uh, trying to build a system where you get a lot of shade during the day as the sun moves across the sky in our climate hugely advantageous, hugely. With that, let's go on and hear now from uh, Matt Matt Hill over at Start9 on how you stay anonymous by using Start9 products. Hey everyone, this is Matt Hill with Start9. I'm here to answer a few questions that were submitted by a member of the Survival Podcast community. Uh, so let's jump right in. Question one, you are still connecting to a local ISP provider, so where is the anonymity? Okay, I believe this question is getting at how can I host a website or a blog or an e-commerce store uh, from my StartOS server from either my home or business uh, in such a way that it is anonymous, that people accessing that um, store or blog or website uh, do not know my identity, including my ISP? Uh, the answer to this is Tor. Um, when you host a website, blog, e-commerce store, uh, or anything public-facing on StartOS, uh, that website is a Tor uh, hidden service, a public key.onion URL. You and only you are aware of the existence of any given Tor URL uh, that is created by your server. The only way that others, including your ISP, can discover the existence of this URL or that it is you behind it is if you tell them. So if you want people to be able to access your website or blog, um, but you don't want them to know that it's you, you will need to find a way to share the existence of this tor.onion URL with 
uh, your intended audience or the entire world in a way that is not linked to your identity, meaning you would not want to publish this URL on your Twitter profile, for example, because then you are telling everyone that you uh, at least are aware of but are probably behind uh, this URL. Um, if you do not divulge the URL at all, nobody will know that it exists. Nobody can guess a public key. And Tor hidden services are blinded from the network, meaning there is no directory of Tor hidden services um, unless you explicitly add it to the directory. So it is uh, anonymous and private by default. Um, Tor is onion routed and to end encrypted. Um, you know, URLs are blinded from the network. The private key that was used to create the public key uh, is stored on your server and is known uh, only to you. So um, unless you link your identity to that URL, uh, it cannot be linked to you. Uh, question two, how does someone purchase from your hosted website's e-commerce without it being traceable? Um, this is similar to number one. Uh, so I'm assuming that maybe this question is directed more at the customers, so the person who is shopping at your e-commerce website, how can they purchase things in an untraceable way? I believe that's what this is getting at. Um, and the answer really is you. Um, you are hosting this website and people can visit it and you have no idea who they are. Um, their IP addresses are not exposed. Everything is onion routed and end -end encrypted over Tor. And so you will need to gather some information from them to fulfill the order, right? You're going to want to collect an email address. You're going to need a physical address uh, if they are purchasing a physical good. And so you will collect this information from them. You can tell them that uh, they can provide a fake name. They can provide an ephemeral email address. They can provide a, you know, uh, a mailbox that is not linked to their identity. And then you can delete all that information after the order is fulfilled. Um, Start9, for instance, runs an e-commerce website where we accept Bitcoin uh, for payment. And when a customer places an order, they can use a fake name, they can use an ephemeral email address, they can provide us a shipping address. And then we automatically delete everything except for the email address 30 days after fulfillment. Uh, and the only reason we keep the email address is um, so that we can handle any kind of issues with the order, like it didn't arrive or um, they want to use the warranty to create a return. Uh, but again, the email address is in no way necessarily correlated to their identity. So we do not need to know the identity of our customers and we purge anything, uh, all pr private information from our server um, on a 30-day rolling basis, and all of that is built in. Uh, we didn't need to do anything special to do that. We just had to check a little box that said, you know, delete everything and then select the time interval of 30 days and we're good to go. And that is all done using a service called BTC Pay Server, uh, which is available on StartOS. Number three, if you want to provide web hosting services to your family or organization, how do you train those folks to use it? Um, so this is not really a question for Start OS. This is a question that would be specific to the software you're running. For instance, if you were running Ghost, Ghost is a blogging platform. Um, you can optionally choose to let others create accounts on your Ghost 
blog platform. Um, or not, you can prevent others and you are the only person who's allowed to use it to post a blog. But if you wanted friends or family or an organization to be able to write blog posts and publish them from the same uh, Tor URL as your own, um, you know, under their own pseudonyms, you can do that. And it doesn't really require much training. It's, it's, Ghost is a pretty straightforward platform. They would create a username and password, they would log in, they'd click create post, they would create it, they'd click publish, and it would be published as their pseudonym, whatever they wanted their you know, public-facing uh, anonymous, pseudonymous name to be, and it would publish, and people could access it by going to that same Tor URL that um, you had created and used for your own blogging purposes earlier. Um, as the server admin, you can always delete their users, you can always uh, kick them off, um, you have the power as the server administrator. Um, so I'm not sure that that fully answers uh, the third question or what you had in mind when you're talking about providing web hosting services. Um, the only one that really comes to mind for me right now is like a, a website or a blog that somebody else wants to host from your server. Um, they can certainly do that. But again, how they do that and the training that they would need to undergo to do it properly um, is just a matter of using uh, a website like any other website um, you know, whatever service you are are hosting. Like, for example, somebody could use your server to host their own e-commerce site if you wanted to let them do that. Um, and that would be a matter of them knowing how to use BTC Pay Server. Uh, a blog would be Ghost. Um, they could use your server for to manage their own passwords. That would be Vault Warden. Um, and so you would need to install these services and um, explore which ones you wanted to allow others to use, uh, which ones you wanted to reserve only for yourself, which ones you want to make public, which ones you want to remain private, and you have total control over all of this and it's all very intuitive on how to do it. Um, and again, unless you, one, share a Tor URL with people, and two, do it in such a way that it is linked to your identity, uh, unless you do both of those things, um, there is no way to know that you are the person behind the Tor service that exists. Uh, hopefully that answered all of your questions. Um, we do have some major new features coming over the next few months uh, regarding ClearNet, the ability to host websites, blogs, e-commerce stores, etc. on normal clearnet.com.net.org domains. Um, and the, the characteristics of that kind of hosting are very different than the currently supported public hosting over Tor, meaning when you are using ClearNet domains, there are multiple ways. Uh, you, both your ISP and um, visitors of your website could ultimately determine the, your identity uh, as the person hosting that website. And that is inherent in using the public internet for hosting needs. Uh, there is just no real way to remain fully anonymous if you are using the public internet. Uh, there are ways to achieve a degree of uh, anonymity, but ultimately anyone with sufficient resources or will will be able to determine uh, the identity of the person uh, behind the website. So um, we're really looking forward to that feature, but definitely beware that the uh, inherent privacy and anonymity characteristics that Tor affords um, are, are no longer guaranteed if you choose to host your 
web resources on the public internet. Uh, I'm happy to answer any additional follow-up questions or even come on the show for some Q&A if anyone is interested. Uh, please just let me know. I hope that this was very helpful. Okay, thank you. All right, so let's go ahead and uh, take mine for today. Um, this comes from Calvin. Calvin says, are the Streamlight Stylus Pro USB rechargeable light and Streamlight Stylus Pro flashlight powerful enough to search your property at night? Well, it depends on your opinion, right? Details. We're looking for an EDC light that will light up our property at night. Fenix and Olight have some impressive specs. But we've only seen you recommend three Streamlight models we purchased the MicroStream based on your recommendation. We're pleased with it. We'd buy it again, but we need something brighter, more lumens, more candle power. Kind regards, Calvin. Um, so you've answered your own question. Is the light bright enough to search your property at night? And that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. But when your next line is, we need something brighter, it's not bright enough for you. So keep that in mind. As I expl- I'm going to explain how I view this what I do, why I recommend what I recommend, and then I'm going to give you some recommendations for brighter lights that are still really, really compact, if that's still what you want to do, because my life and your life are different. Uh, My life now consists of 95% of the time, by the time it's dark, I'm at home. I'm not walking through a, a parking lot, like, you know, when I used to travel, I might be in a parking lot at 2 o'clock in the morning at an airport in another state. Right, so I might be a lot more concerned about tactical light at that point, right? That is also an EDC light. So I believe in two things, right? Standardize and simplify, right? So I like everything simple and everything as standard as possible. So when it comes to batteries in my home, the lights I've, the batteries I've primarily standardized on are AA, AAA, and Ds. Even my, uh, we have like these automated blinds in my living room that like rise up in the morning so I can see my picture windows look at my birds and stuff um, they run on double A's we have you know end loop charge double A's and triple A's um, there's a hundred things probably on my property that run on one of those if I need double A's and I don't have any for whatever reason I can scrounge them from somewhere double A's and triple A's are like the 12 gauge and 20 gauge Uh, of of shotguns when it comes to batteries. They're everywhere and in everything. So it makes sense to standardize them. I also want to have something with a real reservoir of power. So kind of, unless you go to something like the old six-volt lantern batteries or something like that, kind of your D is your camel of standardized batteries out there. Large capacity, lots of power, lots of reserve power, right? Uh, So... We use primarily in our lives the Streamlight Stylus Pro. That's what I carry all the time. The MicroStream, which is the one that this person bought, that Calvin bought, is basically like half of a Stylus Pro. It uses one battery instead of two. And the only reason I started recommending that is because Nicole Sauce told me that girl jeans have stupid non-pockets and that a two-cell light won't fit in girl jean non-pockets. So if you wanted a smaller light, I added that to the T-SPAS catalog, and then there's the USB rechargeable version of the MicroStream, which is just basically rechargeable batteries in a port. Now, so the way I handle things is I carry that Stylus Pro all the time. That's the light if I'm under my desk dealing with a cabling problem, 
It's plenty bright enough for that. I'm in my closet. I went out to put the birds to bed, and there's some reason the latch on the the chicken house door won't close. I'm out on the porch, and the motion sensor light went out, and I'm halfway between the house and the garage. Like any of that stuff, there's plenty of light for that, right? Let's say that I put the dog out at 9.30 at night, and I want to go to bed, and it's 10 o'clock, and he's still not come back, and i got to find him. Yeah, I'm going to use a brighter light. I want to light up the property like you said. I keep on the windowsill of the front door and the windowsill by the back door, one on the back porch and one in the garage, one in the truck and one in the car at all times. Those places all have a three... D cell mag light. Okay? Um, and specifically, it is the ML300, which is the newest version, newest generation of the LED light uh, mag lights. They're very bright. Some of the lights I'm about to give you technically are brighter, but not anywhere near as long do they stay that bright. But to me, those lights are 100% dependable. I've never had one have batteries go, like, corroded in it or anything like that. I'm sure it can happen, but, I mean, we just leave them around all the time. Whenever they start to look a little bit dim, we replace the batteries in them. It's that simple. Um, and the fact that you can grab that light anytime and use it, and I also have an impact weapon. A 3D cell mag light will lay you out cold. It's like getting hit in the head with a hammer. And it's doubly effective because if you were dealing with somebody in the dark with one of those lights and you hold that thing up kind of like you think of like the cop grip, like where you've got your, 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 your thumb to the rear and your pinky to the front and your, your front pinky can actuate the button and you point that at somebody and you hit them with light in the eyes, you're right there, bam, over the head with the next shot. I mean, you, you talk about settling somebody down. So it, it has a multiple functions. It's big enough to be an impact tool. The other thing is the ones in my vehicle, I have an accessory for them called a Bust-A-Cap. Bust-A-Cap, which is basically a conical pointed adapter. You take the, the, the rear cover off of the light that you would normally take off to put batteries in it, and you replace it with a Bust-A-Cap. If you were in a vehicle and you needed to break a window to get out, that's what it's designed to do. It will do other things, and I will leave it at that. Okay, it will bust a cap in your ass. Okay, you figure it out from there. So that's my approach. Since I'm not worried about pretending to be a cop in the back of a parking lot or something like that, since I'm not on Fox News trying to set a piece of newspaper on fire with a flashlight, the Stylus Pro does everything I need. Now, let's say that you're like, but Jack, I want one compact light and I want that sucker bright as shit, and that's what I want. I have no problem with that. There's a couple different levels you can go to. One is you can step up with Streamlight to the ProTac 1L. This is going to put you into the realm of CR123 batteries, which I don't like, but as long as you don't have a problem with it, you're good to go. It will bump your lumens up to 350. The, the, the little uh, st uh, the, the, the microstream, I think, is like 50 or 65. So it's infinitely brighter. It has multiple settings, so you can keep tapping the, 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 the switch on the back and go to lower. Because so, what happens is, you're brighter, your battery life just plummets on full brightness. These are only $35. Bucks. I really like them. 
To get the most out of this light, you're going to have to move into the world of the CR123A battery. Okay. The beauty of this battery is it can, or this light is it can run on CR123s or it can run on double A's. So you get more brightness. You can stay with just a single double A, but your battery life at maximum power really dwindles down. But this is probably the best balanced light as far as price, value, brightness. If you want to step up to the CR123, you can, but the light is capable of using uh, a double A as well. I really like that. That would let you have the flexibility of the 123, but the fallback to your standard 12-gauge shells, basically, uh, if you ever needed to. So that would be kind of my, you know, middle pick. It's bright. It ain't as bright as a, you know, 3D cell mag light, but it's it's really a very bright light. If you want to go better than that, and you want to stay in the com, com you know, ultra compact everyday carry light size. This is where I have to part ways with Streamlight. They have a light that's very comparable to the one that I'm about to give you, but it's like $130. And I don't see stepping up to $130 when Olight makes a really good... Well, they make Olight makes a lot of really great lights. What pushed me away from Olight was, at one point, all the advanced lights, Streamlight had them with double A's, Olight didn't. Olight went kind of all in on CR123s. Since then, they've changed that. But the Olight Baton 3, 1,500 lumens. Don't get excited, because it's only a couple minutes before it drops itself down. Um, but this is a rechargeable light, and it uses a magnetic uh, base charger. So basically, there's not even anything to plug in, so nothing to get clogged up or anything. Things like that are great, And things like that suck. Why are they great? Because when you have a magnetic attachment to charge your, your batteries, you don't get dirt in a port. You don't have problems with your port. I get that. But it's specialized. And that means, like, if you're at your friend's house, you're not borrowing his USB cable to plug in. You see what I'm saying there? All right? So that's one of the things I don't like about specialized chargers. But this light, 1,500 lumens, and it's 70 bucks. And it's probably the best ultra-compact, super-bright EDC light that you can get your hands on. However, I'm going to go back to where I started here. Even if you bought this for your homestead use, I'd really recommend a couple 3D-cell mag lights. They're just... They're like... In the movie where the old lady has the double barrel shotgun at the front door, and no matter what, if you pull the trigger, it's going to go bang, right? And you have that assurance and that safety factor there. Putting those there, and I could still see having this light, because you're out and about, you didn't take your mag light with you, something goes on, bump in the night, boom, bring it up. I just don't feel the need for it. So hopefully that is not too convoluted. Hopefully that makes sense. I'm okay with whatever you do. But those are kind of the order I would go in if you're going to step up. The next step up from where you are is the Streamlight ProTac 1L. 35 bucks, 350 looms. 30, you know, it, it's basically dollar per 10 looms, right? Um, it can use the advanced battery or the standard battery. And it's really a great light. And when I think about it, the only reason it's not in the T-SPAG catalog is because I get comfortable with what I have. 
and I've been carrying the Stylus Pro forever, and I've never bought one of these, and I probably should, because at $35, bucks, it's a pretty damn solid light. Um, if you want to go out from there, kind of the Olight Baton 3 is where I would go, and if you want brighter than that, I'm stepping outside of this ultra-compact world. If I want bright as that even, but I want more battery duration, I'm stepping into a completely different size and form and shape of a light. We're moving up into more of a, you know, multi-C or multi-D cell tack light at that point, in my opinion. Alright, because you, you can do better, but the cost is not worth it. That's where I'm going with it. Anyway, with that, hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Hope you guys have a great weekend. I know I'm going to. And, uh, again, I want to remind you guys, I will be in Camden next weekend. You can still come. You can learn more at selfreliancefestival.com. And uh, with that, I will catch you on Monday with another episode. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. Yeah.